Now, Hebrews chapter 4, if you would, uh, we are going to get to some pretty awesome verses. Um, they're all pretty awesome, but in chapter number 6, we're going to get to a pretty capstone passage um, that is easy to get tripped up on, and I am not worried about it one bit. I think the scripture is super clear, and you'll see what I mean when we get there. Now, before chapter 5, we've got to go back and pick up a chapter number 4 uh, to learn and to relearn, to reestablish the better high priest. And uh, we've stated from the beginning of the study of, book of the book of Hebrews that the, the theme of the book is that Jesus is better than. And uh, we've already seen that Jesus is better than a handful of different things, angels and so forth. Um, now we're leaning into maybe one of the biggest ones. Um, and that is the high priest, that Jesus is a better high priest than the high priest after the lineage of Aaron. And uh, you understand just from reading the Old Testament, the power of the high priest, but you really, it comes front and center, um, the almost idolatrous level of power that the high priest has during the time of Christ. And uh, they are wielding power over access to God that God never intended for their office to hold. And uh, so there is almost a level of idolatry as it was with angels, as it was with Moses. Um, So it was with the priesthood. There was an idolatry attached to it. And Jesus supersedes that. He's the reason for that priesthood, uh, as is he the reason for the the household of Moses, that oikias, as we saw, or uh, the dispensation of angels that Jesus was the reason for all of that. So let's jump into verse number 14 of Hebrews 4, and we'll walk our way into chapter 5. It says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. And uh, we already established last week that normally the author will present us the truth, and then he'll challenge us to hold to that truth. We saw that with Moses. We saw that with the angels. Hey, hold to that. Seeing then, let's hold fast to that. Uh, Verse 15 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched by the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. Now stop real quick. Every priest could make that claim. Okay? And the next chapter is going to actually establish that. That every priest suffered the same things we suffered. Um, Every priest can lay claim to the first part of verse 15, but no priest but Jesus can lay claim to the last part of verse 15. Okay, so every priest is a high priest that he's touched by the feelings of our infirmities and is tempted in every area that humanity is tempted in. But Jesus is, read the last three words out loud with me, yet without sin. That's going to be a huge bearing on chapter number five. It really is the whole crooks of chapter five, that idea that every priest sins, uh, every priest struggled with temptation, and every priest succumbed to that temptation, but Christ is the only high priest who had those temptations and never succumbed to them. And so the mercy and the offering he makes is far superior than the offering of Aaron. And so you'll see that. Look at verse 16. Let us therefore, because of that truth, because he is without sin, because he knows what we walk through, uh, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Now let's pick up in verse number one of chapter five. Again, just rolling straight through in that same conversation and line of thinking. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. So the priests of Aaron's day and of the Old Testament, they were chosen among men for the purpose of ministering from God or from man to God. They were going to make those sacrifices and be somewhat of a bridge, though a, a, a flawed and broken bridge. Um, these men were to, they were ordained for men in things pertaining to God. Keep reading verse number one that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So every priest, including Jesus being established as a priest in this passage, made offerings for sin. Now, every priest that was chosen among men was chosen to minister to, God, to man in the things of God, and they'd make sacrifice. Look at verse number two. Who can, they can, have compassion on the ignorant 
and on them that are out of the way. He says, so these high priests chosen among men can have compassion on the men who are sinners. They can have compassion on their, their, their fellow statesmen uh, because they are sinners. They, the high priest himself is a sinner, and so he has compassion on sinners. In fact, look at the very next uh, line in verse number two. For that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. So the high priests of, of men, as it were, have compassion on men because they are sinful too. So I want you to listen to this idea. The earthly high priest's compassion is rooted in his inability to be judged. So as a high priest, now, and this, we can reconcile this maybe not in terms of priest, but as a pastor. Like, hey, as a pastor, I can have compassion on a church member who messes up because... Man, I mess up too, okay? And a high priest who makes sacrifice for sin cannot make sacrifice for sin with an arrogant heart saying, oh, these people are dirty, rotten sinners. I gotta go offer for them. He says, man, I'm right in there with them. I'm a mess. And so my compassion is rooted, the high priest, my compassion is rooted on an inability to be your judge. Okay, that matters. Let's keep reading. Verse number three. And by reason hereof, he ought You catch what the Bible says? The high priest taken among men who ministers to men on behalf of God has compassion because he himself is compassed about with infirmity and he ought to have compassion because he can't be their judge. He can't think himself better than the common man because he himself is a sinner. So he ought to have compassion. He has no choice but to have compassion. He has no moral standing to not have compassion. Look at the rest of verse number three. For and by reason hereof he ought. As for the people, so also for himself to offer sins. So I hope you realize what's happening. Uh, you would almost expect the rest of the verses to go on and say, but Jesus has never sinned and his compassion is not rooted in the inability to be our judge, but rather his compassion is rooted in the fact that he can be our judge and yet he still loves. But here's the thing. Those, the next verses don't say that because the end of verse chapter 14 said that. The end of chapter 14 shows us we have a better high priest who's not taken among men. He was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. Sin, and then it goes on to talk about Aaron's priesthood. All of these men ought to have compassion because they're sinners. And the sacrifices they make, they don't just make for the people, they make for themselves as well. And so this group of people, as the high priest, should have compassion. And here's the juxtaposition. The end of chapter 14 says, Jesus didn't have to have compassion. He was tempted in all points like we were, yet he didn't sin. And yet as a better high priest, his sacrifice is not only more sufficient, but his compassion is more, uh, more to be adored. It's more to be appreciated. That a high priest to go into the, the, the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur and make a sacrifice, he has to do that. Uh, his own uh, atonement is contingent on some of those things. He's making a sacrifice not just for wicked people, but for his own wicked self. And yet in Jesus' sacrifice and in Jesus' high priesthood, he is perfect. Perfect. He has the right to be a judge. He has no responsibility to be compassionate, and yet he chooses in his sinlessness to still be compassionate on us. So let me ask you then, the point the author is making is, which is a better high priest? The one who, who, who can't judge you and offers compassion, or the one who could judge you and still offers compassion? Jesus is obviously the better high priest. And so let's keep reading in verse number four. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, 
but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So he's going he's to continue on. As I mentioned in verse 4, he's not going to go back and talk about Jesus, because chapter 14 did. So it talked about Jesus, then it talked about Aaron, and that's the juxtaposition. Now the author's going to go on and talk about the priesthood. And he's going to say, hey, and Aaron's priesthood, he didn't select himself. He didn't just decide. Aaron didn't just decide one day, hey, I want to be the priest. And uh, no man could just decide that they wanted to be the priest. In fact, you can ask Korah how that panned out. Uh, Korah, uh, the whole like, uh, siege on the, the tabernacle was rooted in the idea that, well, Aaron shouldn't be the only one that goes in there. Korah, we should be able to go in there, and God destroys Korah and all those different people and uh, because of that sin. And so, no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron, verse number five. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. So just as God bestowed upon Aaron his priesthood, God bestowed upon Christ his priesthood. And that idea of begotten in some instances means born in a physical sense. In other instances, it means that you are the one I selected, as is the case in the most of uh, the book of Hebrews. He says that God selected him. Remember when we talked about angels, at no point did he ever say, you are my son, I choose you. Same concept here. He says, I chose Jesus to be the high priest. In fact, after a very different order. So real quick, the uh, priesthood of Aaron... um, One chosen by God and then reasserted and affirmed when that whole Korah incident happened where no one but the the family of Aaron could be priests. No one but the family of Aaron rather could be the high priest. The Levites were priests, but the family of Aaron was going to be the high priest. It was going to be handed down. And uh, this idea was that nobody could take it. It had to be given by God and through that lineage. But here's the thing. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, not of the tribe of Levi. So Jesus isn't even a priest. He had no rightful claims to the priesthood, except for the fact that he has a different priesthood given to him. Look at verse number 6. And don't don't let this throw you off. We'll do a little bit more study when we get to chapter 7. But look at verse 6. As he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, chapter number 7 in Hebrews is going to deal more in detail with who in the world Melchizedek is. Um, There's some debate about Melchizedek, but we meet Melchizedek in the book of Genesis with Abraham, Melchizedek is a priest before the priesthood even exists. There's not a law, not even Moses. There's no tabernacle. There is no priesthood. And yet during the time of Abraham, when God begins to call Abraham to be a people and create a people, there's this priest that God selects. And uh, who that priest is is a bit debatable. It's my understanding, and I'll, I think I'll show you the, the, the proofs of it in, in Hebrews chapter 7. It says he has no beginning of days. He has no. There's a bunch in there that seems to me at least to present that this is some form of Christophany or theophany, an appearance of God the Father or God the Son in the Old Testament. And so this priesthood comes, and Jesus is not given the priesthood through fallen Aaron, but he's given the priesthood through Melchizedek, which is super interesting because if you'll remember in our study in Leviticus, um, when Aaron became the priest, the guys who were supposed to be next in line were Nadab and Abihu. And the priesthood of Aaron didn't even make it a single generation before showing how flawed the priesthood of Aaron was. And so Christ didn't come through the flawed priesthood of Aaron. He came through a different priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so we'll get into some of that. But it's unique to me that Christ lays no claim to the Levitical priesthood. His claim by birth is actually a laid claim to the house of David, the lineage of David to be king and also to be priest, but after a different lineage, after a different priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, hold on to that. I know that's one of those like, you can, don't, don't YouTube priesthood of Melchizedek. You're going to get all kinds of weird theories and things. Just if you're really confused about it, just read Hebrews 7. It'll give you some clarity on it. But let's continue on. Verse number 7. 
who in the days of his flesh, we're not talking about Melchizedek. Remember how sometimes the author gives us that pronoun that sometimes it's hard to know who it's talking about. It's talking about Jesus, talking about his days of, of incarnation, his days of physical life. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. So this is speaking about when Christ in his humanity in the garden of Gethsemane cries out for the cup to pass. And again, my assessment of that instance, that story, those texts is not so much that Christ is physically concerned about the physical torment, though you'd absolutely deny the humanity of Christ if you said that there wasn't apprehension and concern about the physical suffering. What you do find is Christ asserting the thing he hated was becoming sin, was that he who never understood it would now become it. And so in the garden, when Christ is praying, let this cup pass from me, certainly there are tones of a physical affliction he is concerned about. But no doubt the part of God in him that hated it the most was the fact that sin would be laid upon him. Um, So let's keep reading. Verse number eight. Though he were a son, and that's an assertion of the, uh, the authority. Uh, in the times of the Bibles, and you see this throughout the ministry of Christ as well, a son had the authority of the father. He said, even though as a son, even though he had the ring and the robe, as it were from other stories, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things he suffered. So you almost see this, this conflict going on where obviously Christ is perfect, and yet there are things being added to him, right? We, we saw in the beginning of Hebrews that he was perfected as the captain of our salvation. And that, that there was something, and I, I really want to be careful with using the word, something missing in the person of Christ before the cross. That In that he was not able to save. And that's because of the holiness of God. And so here he is learning something and something is being added to him. And uh, let's keep reading what that is. Uh, notice it says in verse 9, And being made perfect. Okay, being made able, being able to be complete now to save. Um, Verse number nine, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so we're finding that same truth being reasserted that, hey, the captain of our salvation was perfected through his suffering, his burial, his resurrection, now being made able to save us. Which again, when it talks about him being able The converse of that is that it implies that he wasn't able prior. And you'd say, well, God can do anything, anything, anything. God can do anything but fail. God can't save someone who the blood's not applied to either. So we have to amend that. It doesn't quite roll off the tongue in the, maybe verse number two, we could throw that in. But the fact of the matter is he isn't able to save someone who the blood hasn't been applied to. And that's not a lack of ability on his part. That's a lack of obedience on our part. And that's actually the word that keeps coming back up in this text. Look at verse number 12. For when, for, a, uh, for the time ye ought to be, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped verse number 11. Now, let me just say real quick to all my Paul authorship lovers, this part sounds super like Paul, okay? So I, I, I can't even argue with this. Like, this, this sounds like Paul. Look at verse number 11. For, uh, for whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. And uh, so the author of this book is like, hey, there's a lot I want to tell you about Jesus, but you haven't listened to what I've already told you. And uh, you are not paying attention to what has been handed to you. And uh, we don't have to spend a whole lot of time, verses 12 through the rest of the chapter. We actually preached an entire sermon and maybe two on this topic. But let's go ahead and see it. Verse number 12. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers. Now, let me ask you real quick. Who is the book of Hebrews written to? Hebrews, yep. So this is written to the Jews. Now, mind you, the Jews, I want you to think of Paul and Apollos. Before the time of Christ, right, here are these men who have received the law, 
I mean, they're masters in it. They're, they're, they're doctors of the law. Gamaliel, a doctor in the law. Uh, even the high priest, doctors in the law. They've received these principles. They should have noticed who the Messiah was. They had all the promises. If you'll remember during our Christmas season last year, I think it was, we talked about the, the Old Testament prophecies of John the Baptist, that there would come one more prophet and then Christ. Like, they should have seen all these things coming. They, they had the, here's who you're looking for. Here's when he's coming. Here's what he's going to do. Here's how he's going to be born. Here's where he's going to be born. And he says, you received all these things. You should have been the ones who noticed. And then you should have been the ones who taught everyone else. One of the reasons that Paul was so effective, one of the reasons that Apollos was so effective is because they knew the law. And and, and, uh, Brother Mears talked about it a lot, that they didn't even have the New Testament. They go into cities, and from the Old Testament, they'd show who Jesus was. That's what the expectation for the Jews should have been. The the time they should have been the teachers of the gospel. Notice what it says. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again which be the first principles of the oracles of God. He says, this whole thing God gave to you should have been, that's the the foundation. You should have known it was him. You should have seen it was him. You should have been the ones that noticed it and then taught the entire world. Certainly, now we could say that of lost Jews, but certainly that's true of saved Jews, which is who the book of Hebrews is written to. Saved Jews. You've had these your whole life. You went to the synagogue and, was ta- and were taught day after day after day of the oracles of God, the very foundation upon which Jesus would stand and fulfill the law and then move into the church age and reach the world. You should have been the ones that caught it. You should have been the ones that taught it. But now we need to teach you again the very first oracles of God. Keep reading the end of verse number 12. And are become... Uh, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Now, again, that sounds pretty Paul-like to me. He says, I got to bottle feed you uh, when you should have been the ones that could eat the, eat the meat and then digest it and give it to the world. We got to go back and, and help you catch it. And I preached on this topic and I use the illustration. You might recognize it. How many of you have ever lost your glasses on your face? Okay, or lost your keys in your pocket, or you're like, where is my phone? You're holding it. That, that's, that's a lot of what the book of Hebrews is. The, the author's going back saying, hey, uh, guys, it's not Aaron, it's Jesus. You missed it. No, no, no. It's not the temple. It's Jesus. It's not Moses. It's Jesus. Moses sure was faithful over his whole house, but Jesus is the maker of that house. You missed it. The glasses are on your face. You should have been the ones who caught it from the beginning and shared it with the world. Keep reading verse 14. For everyone that useth milk, and that word use is very important, useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now listen, how could the Jews miss what's been given to them? How could the Jews who should have been the teachers, who had learned and studied and trained and memorized the first oracles of God, how could they miss it so clearly that now they're not even able to eat meat? They have to be bottle fed. How could they miss it? Is it because perhaps they didn't know the source material? No, they certainly did. Is it because perhaps they did not love God or have devotion enough? No, that's not it either. The author very clearly tells us here that it is a lack of use. Look at the last two verses of, of uh, uh, this verse, it's, uh, or of uh, chapter number five. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. You're, you're using milk and not meat. Keep reading verse 14. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. You should have been full grown. Even those who by reason of, what's the word? 
have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. This is the idea of needing what we have and using what we have. We talked about that Sunday night. Uh, The apostles were told to wait because they didn't have what they needed. You and I have what we need, but oftentimes we don't need what we have. We don't need, we don't use the Holy Spirit. We don't exercise those senses. We don't grow in our soul winning efforts. We don't use the knowledge that's already been given us. So how is it possible, even in our context, now this is the different context, this is the Jews of the first century, but in our context, how is it possible that someone who's been in church their whole life or for three decades still has not ever taught the word of God, still has not ever won someone to Christ? Still is not, is still having to be bottle fed and pampered and babied and everyone acquiesced to their desires. How is that possible? Well, they're not using what they know. It's probably not a lack of knowledge. They probably have enough knowledge. It's probably not a lack of devotion. They're probably devoted to God. It's a fact that we are not using what God has already clearly revealed and given to us. And that becomes extremely problematic, which is why the author is writing to this group of people saying, you should have been the ones that taught them. You should have been the ones that went. You should have been the light that shined out on the, on the, uh, as that city set on a hill. Now, I'm debating. I got five minutes. Chapter six is a doozy. Um, but it, it's really not. Um, I, let me say this, and uh, we may read a couple of verses. We'll probably stop short of the verse. Um, and some of you know what verse I'm talking about. Chapter number six is a passage. It's like the keystone passage for all people who believe you can lose your salvation. Um, this is the chapter they go to. But i got to be honest with you, I'm not even sure why they would use this passage. We talked about it a little bit last week where it's like the passage that clearly, this one, clearly affirms you can't re-crucify Jesus. You you can't be re-saved. There's there's no way to lose it is the passage that some people use to say, see, it says you can lose it. So let's let's maybe get a running start at it and we'll we'll digest a couple verses and and, uh, maybe get to the one we're looking at. Look at verse number one of chapter six. He says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ. Do not disconnect that from chapter 5. Chapter 5, he's saying, hey, you shouldn't just be eating milk. You should be eating meat. And we're going to have to move on from the bottle. We're going to have to leave those very basic principles. Well, what basic principles? He says the doctrines of Christ. Uh, So he's saying these basic fundamental things of who Jesus is. We as, as, as Jews, and then to us, we as Christians, we should be able to move on past those very basic principles. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ, let us go on into perfection. He says, hey, we got you to first base. You shouldn't be stuck there. You should keep moving. Those are basic milk principles. Let's move on into perfection. And this is a key phrase. Grasp it and go on. So when it comes to the the rooted principles or the basic principles, the author here is saying this idea. Grasp it and let's go. Move to the next thing. Drink the milk, take the nourishment, but you ought not have to only ever have milk. Grasp it and move on. Let us go on unto perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. He says we ought not have to go back and keep relaying this foundation. Here's how you get saved. Here's the doctrine of baptism. Here's the doctrine of this. And in fact, he's going to list a handful of things. Look at it. Verse number two, of the doctrines of baptism and of the laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. So what did he just say? He said, these are the basic principles, the doctrines of Christ. You ought to grasp them and move on. And then verse number three, he says, this we will do if God permit. 
Hey, remember, I have many things I want to tell you, but you're not listening. So if you'll listen and you'll understand, listen, we don't need to relay again the foundation of repentance of of dead works. We don't need to lay again the foundation of the resurrection of the dead or the doctrines of baptism or the laying on of hands. And that one's a little bit hard to know for sure exactly what he's talking about. It seems clear to me at least that he's talking about the fact that the priests, having just mentioned Aaron, would lay their hands on the animal, they'd slit the throat, it would die. In my estimation, I don't think it's the laying on of hands of the presbytery or the laying on of hands of the elders. I think it's the laying on of hands of the priest. He says, let's move on past that. Grasp it and go on. We've got more to cover. Um, let's, let's go ahead and, uh, let me see. I think we can get it. Let's go verse number three. He says, and this we will do if God permit. Hey, if you can grasp this, we'll, we'll keep moving. I got a lot of things to say, but you got to pay attention. Okay, now verse number four. He says, for it is impossible for those who were once, notice how he's going to describe this person. Now, he's going to tell us that this person, uh, let's just read it and I'll back up. For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted of the good word of God and of the power of the world to come, if they shall fall away, it's impossible, is what he just said in verse 4 and 5, it's impossible in verse number 6, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, let's, uh, let's unpack this for a second. What he just said, now here's your question. You've got to think analytically. In verse number 4 and 5, is he talking about a saved person? Don't answer out loud. So let's go back and see how this person is described. It is impossible, if they fall away, to renew themselves repentance and, and seeing that they crucify the Son of God afresh. So, Who are these people? It's impossible for those who were, here we go, here's the description of them, once enlightened. Now, that's a synonym for being saved, okay? And have tasted of the heavenly gift. Now, some people be like, well, it doesn't mean that they swallowed it, it doesn't mean that they took it. No, 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 the word tasted simply means to receive it, okay? They've tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. So some people, in order to interpret this verse, are like, that's talking about lost people. That's not talking about lost people. There's no way. Verse 5, and have tasted of the good word of God and of the power of the world to come. Now, if we can establish clearly verse 4 and 5 are talking about saved people, now we at least know the parameters of what we do with verse 6. If they, saved people, shall fall away. Now we got to define what fall away means. Fall away is the uh, Greek word peripipto. It appears 57 times in the New Testament. And it never, listen, this is important. It never talks. There's, there's kind of a handful of ways that people interpret or apply this passage. Some people will take chapter, or verse number six to say, well, you know, we, we believe in the biblical view of the perseverance of the saints in terms that, hey, once you're saved, you are never going to deny the record of Jesus. And some people will say, yeah, but this, that's what that's talking about. That if someone ever denies the record of Jesus, then they cannot ever be saved. Well, that's super problematic because if, if then, then we should never witness to a Mormon. We should never witness to a Catholic. We should never witness to someone who denies the record of Christ because they, can, they can't re-crucify Christ. This verse is not talking about the perseverance of the saints, okay, at all. So when you read the word, if they, save people who've tasted of all these things, shall fall away. So now it's talking about save people who sin. 57 times in the New Testament, that word is used, and it always talks about someone sinning, not someone denying the deity of Christ or the record of Jesus. This is talking about you and us, you and I. If we fall away... It is impossible, keep reading the verse, 
to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So does that then mean if Brother Jonathan, pardon my use of you, Brother Jonathan loves Jesus, Brother Jonathan has tasted of the gift of God, he knows of the power of the world to come, he's made a partaker of the Holy Spirit, he's been enlightened, he decides to fall into sin. Brother Jonathan, there is no way for you to ever come back because you'd have to re-crucify Jesus for you to be saved. That is how a works-based salvation person interprets that passage. That is not at all what that passage is saying. I'll say it this way. Brother Jonathan, if you as a saved person were to fall away, hey man, you can't get saved again. You can't re-crucify Jesus. There's no need for you to get saved again. You can't re-crucify Jesus. So think about it this way. I'll give you an illustration of my own son. Uh, Let's take Carter, for example. Let's say Carter grows up and says, Dad, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm running away. Carter comes to himself like the prodigal in the pig pen. He comes back home and he says, Dad, I need you to rebirth me back into the family. Figure out how to do this. I'd have to be like, Carter, it's, it's not possible for me to rebirth you back in. Why, and, and, and nor is it necessary. Because you never lost your sonship. Amen. You cannot re-crucify Jesus. You can't renew them to repentance. You can't bring them back to salvation, something they have never lost. Now you say, well, pastor, is that the original meaning? Well, I'll say this. In 250 AD, that's like a generation and a half from Christ. Here is what a, a pre-Nicene, if you don't know what that means, fine. If you do, then great. A pre-Nicene church father, Theogustus, says this about this verse. For those who have tasted of the heavenly gift and are made perfect... There remains no plea or prayer for pardon. There, there is no, uh, there's no way to be resaved. In fact, uh, I'll take you to Romans chapter number nine, verse number nine. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more; death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. You can't, if you fall away, say, "All right, let's re-crucify Jesus," because you know what that implies? That implies the first crucifixion wasn't sufficient. That, hey, he died for me five years ago when I was walking in the way, but now that I've fallen away, that death isn't sufficient for my sin. No, you can't re-crucify Jesus. And the the Catholic view of the Eucharist is that they re-crucify Jesus. That was instituted in the the Council of Trent in 1554. They they decided that, well, the blood of Jesus on the cross wasn't enough. In fact, the priest has to re-sacrifice Christ in the Eucharist. And that's transubstantiation. They believe that the wine and the bread physically become the body of Christ. Why is that necessary? Well, because if you sin this week, we got to re-crucify him. If you sin next week, we got to re-crucify him. But here the Bible is very clear and it states that you cannot do that. You cannot re-crucify Jesus. You cannot renew yourself back into salvation. Now you can recommit yourself, but you can't be resaved. It's already been done. In fact, the same author in the same book, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Go there. And we'll end here. He says in the again, compare scripture with scripture for sure, but compare the book with itself. And that's you're even closer to context there. Hebrews 10:26. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, sounds exactly the same as the other verses, there remaineth no more sacrifices for sin. It it was finished. It was done. And so, yes, if you've tasted and been enlightened and had the Holy Ghost and you've backslidden, which some of us in the room have done that, even for long series of time, if this verse is talking about perseverance of the saints, well, that means that you're not only you not only lost your salvation, but you cannot re-get saved. It's not what that's talking about. It's saying very much the opposite. That if you're his, 
you cannot be renewed to being his because you never lost being his. Carter would never have to be reborn as Nicodemus. He can't go back into his mother's womb and be reborn. It's been one time. There's no other method by which you become a son again from the sonship you've never lost because you can't crucify Jesus again. He, He tasted death one time for all men and his blood covers us from all sin. Let's pray, we'll be dismissed.